Hi, Frank. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Inviting you to speak. How are you, Frank? Nice seeing you here. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hey, Katrina. Yeah. Uh, it's a, this is so this will be a very interesting talk, huh? So the, I, I just did a, a Google, I think Boyd and uh, it confirms my, uh, memory that, uh, he's one of the, uh, I think he was a graduate student in, in, in Nagel's lab that, that was, uh, what Wikipedia says when the, uh, genetics tools, uh, they, they, they were one of the group that first confirmed. Yeah. Oh, Serena here. Hi, Serena. Hello. Couldn't miss this one. Yeah, he's a major uh, technology developmental person that um, brought a lot of great tools for neuroscience that are really important and broadly used nowadays. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I put the link up. He has various websites. Um, he has the, um, his own website, then from his group, Synthetic Bi Neurobiology Group website, and then he also has the MIT Media Lab, his website there, and and the McGovern Institute at the MIT. So, I don't know, I might switch around. Hi, Victoria, how are you? Hey there. Hello. Wow, happy to see this crew. Hi. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah, how is everybody? Busy, busy. I slipped into a seven day a week work pattern. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know about that. It's been going okay. Though. Yeah, good. I hope you're getting some self care time. Um, I'm retroactively calling it that. <laughs> Selectively. Sure. Do we have to come over there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> come on over. Enjoy the sunset with me. Oh, that sounds great. It's pouring here. It's been pouring all day. And yesterday it snowed all day, which was pretty fun. Oh, no. Yeah, well, the snow was great because it we I just expected it. Was, it wasn't even predicted. It was a kind of a surprise. I don't want to ever see the stuff again. I have latitude restrictions. <laughs> Too much time in New York. It is really distracting. Well, the part about it being so cold doesn't help. Oh, yeah, that part. <laughs> <laughs> I just put on a lot of layers and go outside in it. It's, I just will never get used to it. It's, it's just so pretty and quiet. It's so quiet. And you just look up into it as it's falling. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see, you know, it's just this dimensions of just snow. It's and it goes forever. It's I just can't get used to that sight. But I I hear you about the cold part. It's it's that we get it so infrequently. It doesn't usually stick for more than a week if it does. So it's kind of it is a novelty. 
Yeah, I guess it's different when you can't escape it. That'll take a toll on you. What do you think about snow, Katerina? You're still there. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I I couldn't come back to <clears throat> with, without finishing that. I love snow. Well, I love skiing. I love snow as long as it's not too cold. I love it. We used to go in Switzerland in um, spring break. Higher up, you can be basically in a t-shirt, and because the mountain is still so cold at night, and also the ground, you can. You can do skiing in a t-shirt. It's amazing. You have the view. It's silent. Snow makes everything silent. Uh, I love it. You know, that I love different things. You know. yeah. Not the whole year, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Victoria. Go ahead. Oh no, I was cutting you off. <laughs> cutting off. Cutting off. Uh, yeah, just the, the part I forgot about the part about the skiing and the t-shirt. That was, that was great. To be able to be in that in snow and not have a million layers on, that's a kind of freedom. Yeah, I agree. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, I like you know different things throughout the year I, you know just summer or just fall or just you know that would be more like like a mix however i get sick of new york winter by like february then it's <laughs> <that is> enough <laughs> and i could be done with it but that's not how it works so like i don't like march february march is getting it gets old then Let's say it that way. <laughs> and welcome everyone. Uh, we'll start on top of the hour. In the meantime, there are some resources pinned on top of the room, but also even more um, in the chat. Uh, feel free to check them out in the meantime. Do, does anyone up here make um, roasted pumpkin seeds or just the seeds, cook the seeds of your winter squash? Hey, Denise. Hi, everyone. I do. And also, don't eat yellow snow. That's my snow contribution. Ew. Well, <laughs> Ew. I'm just asking because you. I, I discovered that you don't have to separate them from all of the pulp. You can just kind of, I mean, you remove the bigger parts, but you can just, it, it just saves so much time to just put them in the oven. And with just some, let it roast off the the web, yeah. Yeah, with a little. I put on some olive oil, but yeah, it just kind of cooks, or it tastes sweet. It's it's fine. It used to just take so much time, and then you get all of your fingers. And um, anyway, that's my cooking tip for today. Thank you. You can also use a uh, a blender, one of those hand blenders, if you want to get that stuff out. I saw. I haven't done it myself, but I saw a video. It seemed pretty convincing. I'm sorry, what did, how did they, what, how? It's kind of like a, like a stand mixer, but the handheld ones. Imagine an egg beater, but it's mechanized and 
I know probably not everybody has one of those. I definitely don't have one, but. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I just tried my hand at the, these uh, blenders that you mentioned. Uh, first time, first cake that I tried. <laughs> no, the, the, the ice cream case with a blender, the, the egg white is much better. It's like uh, change the into another form of material. I would say uh, it's like phase transition. It's very interesting. Well, there are some sorts of cakes you don't want to use the machine because then you overbeat it. Oh, it's supposed to be more clumsy or clumpy. Um, so sometimes it ruins it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to develop. That, that's, that's the difference, newbie. <laughs> I just beat it to the death. It's, it's become completely like foamy and stuff. I thought I, I, I was wondering you know, why. I mean, it turns out the, the, the ice cream cake in the end was okay, but uh, it's uh, just somehow a little bit icy it's it's not as creamy so maybe that's the reason well if it's a glutinous flour and you're making something like muffins or pancakes you don't want to overbeat you want to keep the clumps as katarina was saying and if it's cake then often it's a cake flour which isn't such a high gluten flour and and so you want to i don't really make that many cakes but i know you want to beat the hell out of it or you could Well, this should be interesting. Did uh, Professor Boyden confirm, or do you think I would keep the room up if he didn't confirm? <laughs> well, I'm just <laughs> dropping the subtle hint. Well, if you don't have time to wait a few minutes, you know. I have time, Katerina. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I emailed him five minutes ago um, with the. Um, with the link, but he confirmed the last time, October 31st. We talked about if we should do slides or not uh, mm -hmm. and stuff. So yeah, so yeah, should be here, hope. Okay. And um, yeah, in the meantime, we can, we can talk a little bit about the room, what this is about, and um, yeah, make this waiting time a little bit interesting. Uh, so, <clears throat> as I said, at Boyden, he is at um, MIT mostly. Um, he has um, the Synthetic Neurobiology Group. I uh, post the link on top of the room. Check it out. It has a really a lot of interesting... Um, um, you know, resources, including, you know, who with uh, the latest uh, nature news in nanotechnology, um, where I don't know if you learned uh, about this, but he, oh, there is Ed. Hi, hi Hello, Ed. <laughs> can you hear me? Yes, perfect. Hello. Great, cool. I just want to make, I haven't used Clubhouse in a couple of years, so I'm trying to make sure I'm doing it correctly. Yeah, you're perfect. And welcome, oh welcome back. Thank you for coming back after two years for us. Yeah, yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, that's wonderful. And um, yeah, let's uh, start maybe with an introduction. I think everyone knows you, but 
you know, maybe in case somebody is here that doesn't know anything about neuroscience, I'll um, give the audience a short introduction and then we'll start a conversation, I think. Is that is that good? Yes. My name Perfect. is Ed Boyden. Good. Yeah, so I direct a group at MIT at the McGovern Institute, which works on technologies for mapping and controlling the brain. Many of these tools are in widespread use in neuroscience, but also increasingly in many other fields as well, um, from cancer biology to studying COVID-19 to uh, trying to confront aging. And so our hope is to really get biology down to what you might call a ground truth uh, level of description, you know, the fundamental building blocks of life and how they interact and work together, both so we can eventually, hopefully, have a theory of life. You know, can we simulate life in a computer even? And um, hopefully also be able to cure diseases which are currently intractable. So that's kind of uh, the, the bird's eye view of what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's, um, that's really a wonderful introduction and um, it's really interesting work you do. Um, and I posted um, on top of the room a link to, you know, you have different websites. One of the websites um, that, um, so if people want to check it out, additionally, after the room, check out um, different papers, resources, please click on the link. Is also shared in the chat in case we switch to something else and um yeah i'll just start with like a few questions that are kind of just pointing to different works you did so usually um we actually victoria starts with really interesting general questions if that's okay and then i'll take a turn is that good wonderful <laughs> okay victoria go ahead um, here I am. I just, I just have to get this peanut butter off my hands. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, sorry. It's all about the timing. Absolutely. Yeah. So welcome. <laughs> welcome. It is fantastic to have you back and Science Society is really appreciative of you coming and sharing your time with us. So just my question for you is to give us more background about you to lead us into the body of your discussion. So if you can think back through your life to where you noticed that that you felt an affinity towards science or scientific thought or research, and this could be in your childhood or any time, just when, when did that spark hit you? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I grew up in North Texas, um, in a suburb of Dallas. And um, when I was young, I quickly became obsessed with, um, you know, what is the meaning of life? Um, I went through a religious phase, my parents would drop me off at church, um, around eight years old, and around age nine, I started wondering, can we understand all of this more directly? Can we understand life, you know, can we understand existence, and I became very philosophical. And um, a couple of years later, around age 12, um, I went to the science fair in Austin, Texas, the capital, and people were doing real science. You know, they were looking at cancer genes. They were studying, you know, at universities. And I just became really obsessed with um, doing science. Um, and so I became really ambitious. I really started studying hard. And I ended up leaving home at age 14 and going to a special program called TAMS, the Texas Academy of Math and Science, where they take a bunch of high school students across Texas and have them basically go directly to college, skipping their remaining grades. 
And that was wonderful. I worked in a group that was working on the origins of life, Paul Braderman's group. They were trying to create DNA out of clay, which uh, didn't work or you would have heard about it, but it was still a fantastic training ground to think about life and, and to do science at the border of philosophy and practicality. That's how I got started. <clears throat> that sounds just so wonderful. I'm, I'm imagining how that was to be 14 and have be taken so seriously and have your your abilities and your curiosity taken so seriously that that you were given all of this um you know this these challenges it's wonderful yeah and, yeah. yeah so so can you can you take us maybe step by step through events that brought you up to your current research today. I'm sure I, you know, I'm just like, they're myriad, they're infinite. <laughs> um, sure. Key points. Thank you so much. This is very, I'm just really, it leaves so much to imagine. We could just talk about that, what that experience was for a kid to go away and, and um, you know, your thought processes and what you were wondering about. But anyway, I've, I've given you a question that will be for another day. Thank you so much, Ed. Yeah. Well, so in summary, after that, I, I really stuck with projects that were at the border of philosophy and science. I transferred to MIT, where I switched my major from chemistry to physics and ended up studying engineering as well. I was an undergraduate for six years, and I ended up working um, on quantum computing uh, for my, my master's degree, again, sort of the border of the, the strange and the scientific and the practical. And I learned something, you know, working the origins of life, that's a really hard problem. Working on quantum computing, another really hard problem. And third time's a charm, in 1998, uh, I got really interested in neuroscience and, um, and, and the brain. I thought uh, maybe we could just try to solve it in terms of the underlying chemistry and physics. You know, it's a less fundamentally difficult problem than, let's say, quantum computing or the origins of life, which are sort of very fundamental. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it turns out that all that chemistry experience and physics experience, experience uh, prepared me to uh, take a novel approach to neuroscience. So yeah, in 1999, I switched into the Stanford PhD program and um, studied learning and memory with Jennifer Raymond and Dick Chen. And then uh, as a side project, did this project on controlling the brain with light in parallel to my, my day job of the PhD. And that became optogenetics, which became a big hit. And that's uh, led to my group at MIT. Thank you. And I'm, again, just feeling, thinking about that as giving you, since you had those tools to further your research and questioning at such a young age, I'm, I'm wondering how that influenced you as well to, um, you know, just to pursue your own original thought. <clears throat> yeah. Well, two things happened. Um, one was because, um, you know, I started college so young and uh, as four years younger than people. I always felt like I had some extra time to bet on big risky things. And, um, and then, you know, I was lucky. So things worked out really well. And so then I would try even bigger, riskier things. And that kind of kept going to the current day. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I, but also it, coming for a different field, right? Training in chemistry and physics and engineering was very helpful because, um, I, I think I came to the field with maybe a different set. I was going to say less preconceived notions, but maybe a better phraseology is different preconceived notions about the brain. And one of them, of course, was that we should use a technological approach to confront the brain. Um, 
We build the, need to build the tools so we can see what's in the brain, right? What we don't see, we cannot understand. And to control the brain so we can fix it. And that's now led to technologies that are showing promise in human trials for blindness and, and Alzheimer's and, and other conditions. Thank you. Thank you for that detailed description. Um, at this point, I'm, I'm going to just pass the mic to you. And you know, you've been here before, but we're here to moderate the room for you. Um, afterward, if you'd like to have Q&A, then we can do that. If you prefer to have questions driving oh. yeah, your talk I'm along. Oh, sorry, sorry. Just doing, we are just doing a discussion. Ah. Um, we'll take it away. Style, yeah, take like, it away, Katani. Like <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Take the mic. Um, <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> thank you. That's, um, that's really wonderful that you had this opportunity to take risks. Um, um, I, I think that's, that's really a key. Um, do you think that's a key? for developing like this this groundbreaking type of technology because it is like just for everyone that doesn't know like optogenetics and these technologies that at um developed with um his colleagues are like everyone in neuroscience basically is using it to do precise to dissect out precisely what is happening in the brain and, and, and then hopefully in the future also treatment. Um, so yeah, do you think to have this ability to do high risk is really crucial to come up with, um, with progress like this? Well, the funny thing is, if you look at optogenetics or expansion microscopy or other tools you develop, it would take us years to kind of converge in the right approach. But then once we started the experiments, it, it would converge pretty fast. So I think there's a way to reduce risk. And um, a lot of the things we do look high risk, but because we've we practiced a certain way of confronting problems, I actually think risk can be reduced. And, um, and so many of my group's alumni are confronting climate change or trying to revolutionize education or trying to revolutionize 3D printing or other other areas. And I think it's because um, there is a scientific method which might be optimized for trying to be very revolutionary about a topic. And um, yeah, so I think there's a way of reducing risk that could be thought more about. Um, I never have time to, to do it, but I thought of writing a book on this topic. Um, and I started seven or eight times, but but um, it does seem like you can you can think about a problem very systematically, you know, try to think of every possible solution to the problem, for example. Um, you know, design strategies that reduce risk by uh, what I call constructively failing. You try something and it fails, but it teaches you what to do next because the failure shows you something the world's never seen before. Anyway, I think there's many methodologies you can invent that can directly convert risk into low risk or failure into success. And so that's something that I think a lot about. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um... I would love to read that book, so please. I'm trying to work on it someday. Yeah, that's always what we say, right? One day we will have time for yes, it. Yes, one of these that. decades. One of these decades. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you have. And um, another um, thing I wanted to point out is the expansion microscopy, which is, I think, also a wonderful project that you did not just because of the elegancy and you know how how um, 
how useful it is, but also it enables a lot of labs that usually wouldn't have money to um, to go into a more granular data, like smaller data, uh, and to visualize it. it and you know, it 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 kind of democratizes this type of field. Um, so, how how did you start working on this project? It's really interesting. Well, um, with actually my very first postdoc, Brian Chow, uh, we were brainstorming how could we separate all the molecules in a sample so that you could uh, make room to tag them. And then you could also do nano imaging. This is in 2007 or so. Um, but it turns out that, you know, super resolution microscopy had come out the year before and, and we got busy with other things. Um, and then in 2012, um, Faye Chen and Paul Tilburg were working my group. Faye was doing storm microscopy and Paul was doing electron microscopy. And we um, were trying to do nano imaging and it was hard. So we started working, um, thinking, wow, if we could expand things, that could be really useful. And it led us uh, down to the passive expansion. And um, we started uh, pursuing it, I guess, around summer 2012, I guess. And then um, by early 2013, it was showing signs of working and so for those who don't know what it is we take a specimen a preserved specimen of the brain and we can form a dense spider web like mesh of baby diaper polymer inside inside the brain inside the cells around the cells just permeating it and if you do it just right and add water the baby diaper polymer swells but it'll make the brain physically bigger so yeah now anybody can do nano imaging the fundamental building blocks of life are nanoscale and now so you want to map the brain you got to see those nanoscale things Expansion lets you do that. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, I've over 400, 450 results have already come out doing expansion. Probably over 1,000 groups are practicing it. It lets anybody image down to the fundamental resolution of life. Yeah, I, I'll just make a comment and then I'll pass it on to everyone else because I think everyone is excited to talk with you. So, um, yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's a it's one thing to do a work to dissect out the path where we're doing like you know tiny increases <laughs> um, of knowledge, but um, you know, giving people tools that even make their work affordable is really a whole nother level. So yeah, thank you so much for doing that, and uh, I'll pass the mic to Frank. Thank you. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks, uh, Katrina. Thanks, uh, uh, Dr. Borden. Your work, uh, groundbreaking work on optogenetics is, uh, is uh, and uh, it cannot, you know, <laughs> uh, be, you know, said more that it's very, you know, uh, uh, make so much impact on, in, in the community of research. I myself a, uh, consider myself an engineer working with plastics. So what uh, Katrina was just uh, uh, giving introduction on the uh, your new uh, uh, invention, uh, new work that uh, the expanding expansion of uh, polymers. So I, I was wondering how, what type of a polymer, and how how much the uh, the uh, it expands. You know, uh, I actually <coughs> myself has a self heating uh, type uh, the, with the uh, very it's uh, we we call it. Uh, um, uh, it's a it's a trim it's a uh, 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 it, it, it's it's this type of a uh, uh, 
now it's been a while, but uh, it, it, it's a uh, 3D printing material that was made out of uh, um, a trimer, uh, the uh, 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 P and PP, so that uh, it actually can uh, 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 under stress it can kind of has a, a six <coughs> time, a maximum five times of uh, extension. So uh, by that we uh, propose it can be used. Uh, it's just uh, using uh, regular light. It has it shows a very regular uh, pattern of uh, types of uh, uh, absorption and uh, uh, so so that it. Because of the uh, large expansion, it can function. We propose it can function as a um, kind of a magnifying, <laughs> but that's a very macro uh, uh, scale of uh, improvement. So, so you're at the nanoscale is very, you know, uh, groundbreaking. So, I was wondering, yeah, you know, what what type of material and how much is ex extends. In our first paper in 2015, when we announced the discovery that we could magnify brains, um, we used sodium polyacrylate. So it's a free radical synthesized hydrogel. Um, the physics of studying this goes back to the 1970s, 1980s. There's a paper by Toyoshi Tanaka called Phase Transitions in Ionic Gels, <clears throat> which um, describes the, the phase transition-like physics of the expansion process. And um, that's the polymer we use. Uh, you can create it several different ways. People have made different flavors. So our initial flavor expands four and a half fold in each direction, about a hundred times in volume. Several groups now have made versions that expand 10 times in each direction, a thousand times in volume. But in 2017, we showed that we could take a specimen, polymerize and expand it. Then we can form a second polymer in the space opened up by the first expansion and expand it again. So you can do that over and over again if you want to. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, many people now are using all sorts of different expansion methods, um, uh, it, it different polymers to expand. I mean, um, in fact, some people try to do it even without polymers. They just add a bunch of chemicals to the specimen. The specimen absorbs those liquids full of different salts and, and different you know, materials, and, and then it expands just by swelling. Yeah, that's amazing. I think the uh, the method of delivering is also so. I assume this is. Uh, I haven't read your paper yet, so I'm I'm quite sure. I mean, it's it's been done like in vivo, right? Oh yeah, over a thousand research groups are already doing expansion microscopy, and and um, uh, four hundred, four hundred fifty. Let me see. I keep a counter here. How many papers? Four hundred fifty-four experimental results have put on bioarchive uh, so far. So. Rapidly spreading. Um, yeah. It's very easy to do. I see. Uh, I'll go I just there. got a Google Thank alert you. that today four more papers came out doing expansion. So it's spreading very, very quickly. Thank you. Yeah. I'll pass the mic to uh, uh, Serena. Well, so hello. There's it's so many aspects of your work that are interesting. Um, my background is in chemistry, but that was in the 90s, and I sort of had a, a, a walkabout throughout different topics. Um, I did do some work with channel rhodopsin, or not, sorry, uh, rhodopsin, actually, simulation work, um, in diving into the mechanism of uh, rhodopsinism in visual protein. I'm, I'm less read on um, the actual detailed mechanisms of optic genetics. Um, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about that, but 
I also want to comment that the expansion uh, microscopy aspect, really brilliant. Um, amusing how you introduced it as a baby diaper polymer. I'm curious if the um, the actual you know original thought uh, that sent you down that road into exploring different polymers and um, their properties of expanding, <clears throat> how that um, how that came about. Um, I'll, if we have time later and coming back, I'll open up the origin of life can of worms. But let's let uh, other people ask first. Great. A curious, yeah, the original idea of expansion um, and maybe some comments on the mechanisms of optogenetics. Great. Let's start with the optogenetics. So rhodopsins are the molecules in our eyes that convert light into downstream chemical signals. It turns out microbes all over the tree of life, all over the earth, contain proteins that convert light directly into electricity. They act just, they look like the rhodopsins in our eyes at a gross level, but they contain ion pumps or ion channels instead. So in optogenetics, what we discovered was that we could take the genes that encode for these light activated proteins, we can express those genes in brain cells and they work. They're safe enough, they're fast enough, they're powerful enough that you can shine light on a brain cell expressing this protein and you can turn that brain cell on or off. So that's being used by thousands and thousands of neuroscientists to activate brain cells with light, express the gene, shine the light on the cell, and then you can turn a brain cell on, electrically speaking. By turning a brain cell on, you can figure out what it can initiate or sustain, a behavior, a pathology state, a therapeutic state. Um, by turning a brain cell off, you can find out what it's needed for delete it and see if it's needed for a behavior or a pathology state or a therapeutic state. So that's optogenetics in a nutshell. Um, just just please, a quick, quick follow-up. Um, is, is there a cofactor involved in that mechanism that needs to be uh, externally regenerated like in Rhodopsin or is that just cleanly reversible? So there is a cofactor called all transretinal but amazingly, okay. it seems to be it seems to be spontaneously present in the brain, which is amazing. Sheer dumb luck there. And amazingly, um, it doesn't need any extra machinery to generate it. It's a closed photocycle for the aficionados. I see. So the, there's no cis-trans isomerization in the activation, like with Rhodopsin. Oh, there is. There is. It isomerizes absolutely, but it goes back to the initial state spontaneously. Huh. Well, that's convenient. Absolutely. Isn't it? It's just all biology. All the great stuff is luck, right? <laughs> you know, CRISPR was discovered, you know, in yogurt, right? Uh, green for some protein found in jellyfish. None of this stuff had to work. None of this stuff had to be there, right? You know, all the great treasure is hiding in plain sight. You just have to go find it. Very cool. And so the origin of the idea for expansion. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, Brian Chow, my first postdoc, and I were brainstorming, how can we physically magnify an object? And we started looking at some hydrogels that would expand a bit by twofold or so. Um, but super resolution microscopy had just come out the year before, so we thought, yeah, a lot of people are doing nanoimaging. And then two then grad students, Faye Chen and Paul Tilburg, joined my group. Faye spent a, his 
first year of my group doing super resolution microscopy, and Paul spent his first year doing electromicroscopy. Turns out doing nanoimaging is really hard, and so we started revisiting expansion and um, found some papers on polymers expand more and gave it a try. Okay, thank you. Um, pass the mic to Denise. <clears throat> Thanks, Serena. Uh, wow. So many interesting things we covered already. I was going to ask a little bit more about where, so there have been several papers that are submitted, and this is mostly um, stuff on a lab probably or a bench. I'm curious what you see in terms of uh, clinical setting or, you know, where 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 do you see these things or you know the fruits of your research how do you see that translating to therapeutics or you know to be able to benefit patients because i can hear it from the way that you speak that that's one of the things that you'd like to see happen well it is happening yeah so um a european team has taken one of our optogenetic molecules and Last summer, they announced that they could help a untreatable blindness patient to have a partial restoration of functional vision. Um, a group at MIT, Leeway Size Group, used optogenetics to discover a brain wave that might help clean up Alzheimer's disease. And we've now been helping her um, to see if you could induce those brain waves with movies. Um, and then, you know, imagine a movie that could help treat Alzheimer's disease. Um, the expansion method. You know, if you, early in a disease, the changes are small, right? That's almost the definition of early. And um, we and others have, have shown in several papers that you can physically expand, for example, a cancer biopsy and make those early tiny changes large and obvious. So we had a paper showing that early in breast cancer at a stage where doctors disagree about the diagnosis, like half the time, right? A coin flip. Um, we could expand those early breast cancer biopsies and um, train a machine learning algorithm, a simple AI, uh, and it can classify the tumors much more consistently. So it, there are many uh, preclinical and clinical studies ongoing for both of these technology suites. Wow, that's really amazing. I wonder, I wonder if you see a timeline on when they might be... Um approved for wide-scale use. Obviously, we have to do the foundational studies to make sure it's safe and all these other factors, but what do you think about the timeline on that? Um, well, Lee Wade and I started a company called Cognito Therapeutics, which is trying to get the Alzheimer's therapy to through the FDA. Um, the European team that's uh, trying to get the blindness treatment, I believe, got FDA fast-track designation recently. So um, I'm not a doctor, you know, I'm not a clinician. I'm not leading these efforts. I just make the stuff um, and help people use it to make discoveries. But, um, you know, these are all things you can look up on Google News if you want to see more about it. And, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I myself am very excited about the, po the prospects, but I don't know enough about the, you know, I'm not a doctor or a clinician, so I'm not leading these efforts of doing the clinical trials. Surely I understand. Um, I definitely have other questions, but I also want to leave some room for others to ask questions. So I'm not sure if it's to Wisdom or Josie. Do either of you have questions? 
Yeah, I, got, I have some questions. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to <clears throat> thank you for, for spending time with us. I uh, really appreciate this uh, chance to <clears throat> chat with you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a PhD student working in, in your neck of the woods. I, I live in Kendall, but I walk the, the Longfellow work in a, in a Harvard lab in the uh, MGH campus. And uh, our lab, like many others, uh, really depend on uh, the tools that you've been building. So, you know, just want to thank you for, for your work in general. Happy to help. Um, yeah, so I have two questions. One is more specific, um, more specific to my research, and the other one's a little broader. Um, so my lab and myself, like, like many neuroscience labs, are keeping a close eye on your work. You know, your work with... Um, Improving opsins, for example, step opsins, red shifting, voltage imaging, um, all of these kinds of uh, tool building uh, projects you have going. Um, I'm in the in the small camp, uh, but growing, I think, camp uh, interested in dendritic computation. Um, and I know there's been a lot of good work around uh, being subcellularly specific, uh, somal localized mostly. I'm wondering. Um, if you have your eye on or if you have any thoughts about the idea of uh, building dendritic specific manipulation tools, that would be the, the first question. And the second one is more broad about, I'm curious what you see on the horizon, what you're excited about, um, wh where you think the field should be focused uh, moving forward. <clears throat> Always happy to help. Yeah, I mean, there have been several papers where people have express molecules on dendrites of the past if, if they're not up to speed for what you need it's always good to hear feedback um but uh yeah i always like to understand the problem before trying to solve it um yeah so i'd love to learn more about what you're struggling with why the existing tools don't don't cut it for you and and what we could do yeah so maybe email me i'd love to learn more but uh uh but yeah i don't uh, you know you don't know what you don't know and, and i have seen several groups that have done dendritic targeting or try to, you know, stimulate um, parts of cells by focusing light. And it's just great to know why those things aren't, aren't good enough um, before we spend a lot of time trying to make them better. Your second question was about um, what, what's next. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What are you, what are you excited about? What do you think the field should be focusing on? Hmm. Those are two different things. I mean, the field kind of has its own will, right? And, there's the people have certain priorities and, and they, they, they perceive needs as a, as a collective in certain ways. Um, what, what, what I think, what the field seems to want and what, where I'm going are, are quite different, which is as it should be, I guess. Uh, we don't want to be redundant. I don't want to do things other people could do. Um, yeah. So, um, in terms of, but, but I think we, in a nutshell, just want to see everything in biology, you know, why can't we see sugars? Why can't we see fats? Why can't we see vitamins? Why can't we control these things? So much of our group is focused on seeing everything and controlling everything in biology. That's really what I see the core, the core problem to be. Now what the field wants, that's really, that's really up to whatever the field wants, I guess. And, and we definitely try to help people solve problems um, by providing tools to them freely. You know, and uh, two past tool sets, the optogenetics, and the expansion are used by you know perhaps thousands of groups now, um, and so we're always trying to share our tools with everybody who who wants to use them. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, you you're you're always been very uh, generous with uh, sharing the tools you're building. So 
Thank you. And, and I'll, I'll take you up on that email. <laughs> yeah, I don't see this generosity. You know, if we work so hard to build these tools and nobody uses it, what's the point? I should just retire mm -hmm. and lie on the beach, you know? Why work so hard if nobody's going to use it? Excellent, excellent. Thank you for taking my questions. Yeah, I have a follow-up <laughs> question about, you know, we've been um, interested in astrocytes lately, and we had the room where we talked about you actually um about um you know how astrocytes are more uh, involved in transmitting information than we thought before and this researcher was here from switzerland who talked about that the potassium signaling from neurons is actually kind of the trigger for then astrocytes to um start then their calcium waves and would there be a possibility in the future to have a good uh, potassium indicator? Yeah, good question. Um, Christina Torres-Caban, who recently finished her PhD in my group, um, worked on a, an improved potassium indicator. Um, she's now finished up and moved on. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's early days, you know, from the first calcium indicator in 1997 to G-Camp, the, the, the most popular one that was you know, what, uh, 97, 2007, like 15 years. It's, it takes time to build great tools, but, but we and a couple other groups have begun the process. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you mentioned, you know, sensing everything. So um, are you thinking of, you know, developing sensors for humans to basically monitor better for preventive care, maybe even in the future? Um, to sense more and like to collect more information and then be warned uh, in the future more like earlier on so it doesn't develop maybe into a disease something. Well, that's what I mentioned earlier. Um, so we and others have shown that the expansion method uh, can be applied to um, human tissue biopsies and we can then classify cancers at an earlier stage uh, and than we could before. So yes, that's already uh, published work from our group and and we're uh, working with many people to apply expansion to many different areas. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, sorry, Josie and Nardish, I know you were waiting patiently. Please go ahead, thank you. No, no worries. Uh, can you hear me first of all? Perfectly. Uh, well, uh, Denise kind of had my same question, so I'll be a little bit more specific with it then. I'm really interested in how microplastics influence neural development. I'm wondering if your expansion technique is being applied or could be applied to perhaps examine like how microplastics localize within cells or how, how they could be influencing development. Thank you. So the expansion protocols we post on the website, expansionmicroscopy.org. As I mentioned, over 450 experimental results have already been published. The vast majority of these results are from people who I don't know. So the protocols are out there and anybody can apply them. So I think the honest answer to your question is I don't know what people are doing with it. You know, it's out there. We want to help everybody do nanoimaging. But um, yeah, it could be worth a try. I, I think you could prob probably expand cells and hunt down where things are inside of them for sure. All right. Thank you. I'll pass it to Nerdish then. I don't have much more questions. 
I'm in a really bad area. I appreciate the talk. Thank you. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, um, so I know, Serena, you said you had more questions and uh, Wisdom and Frank, do you want to ask your follow-up questions? Well, sure. Um, so in terms of more sensing, I, you know, uh, Katarina just mentioned the potassium sensing. Um, <laughs> volta voltage sensing has also come up. Uh, I wonder if you have your sights on any of that uh, in, a, in a dendritic context. Yeah, so we published um, a improved voltage indicator in Nature Chemical Biology in 2018 that we found with a robotic screening method we developed. And then a year later, 2019, we had a paper with Hans Group at BU uh, in Nature where we showed that we can use this to image neural activity in awake-behaving mice. Um, and uh, we and others have used these to look at, at dendritic voltages. And in fact, um, a group, uh, Chris Dula's group at Tufts just published a nice paper in Nature Neuroscience, to go back to an earlier thing about astrocytes as well, showing that they could image voltage on astrocyte processes and see how those um, relate to neural activity. So um, absolutely, it works. Um, and the field's always getting better. So that's fascinating. I've, I'm, I've also sort of fallen down the astrocyte rabbit hole. Um, in terms of uh, getting at the uh, calcium oscillations and the drivers for those, and um, not just the, the slow wave oscillations, but, you know, the limits of the high frequency oscillations in the processes, um, anything in your crosshairs for that? For oscillations? Calcium oscillations, yeah. Well, I guess the question I would have is what do the existing tools fail to do? I mean, many people have built calcium indicators. It's a giant industry. People can look at calcium transients and oscillations with them. I guess I would ask what's what's wrong with those tools? What, what's the need that's unmet? And I, I just love to understand the problem before we, we propose to tackle it. Fully appreciate that. Um, and as, I, as I'm wading through the literature and, the, and it's really just coming out at an increased pace, um, there's, uh, you know, there's there's discussion and debate about just trying to understand uh, the role of of these calcium oscillations in, um, you know, what I'd like to phrase as an astrocyte neuron dialogue, and and uh, how much information processing are they carrying, and what what their actual role is. In some sense, um, you know, some reports will will indicate they're pushing neural synchrony in uh, topographic regions, which is kind of interesting. Um, but what, but, but they're, the significance of the specific frequency, are they in, in some cases, the, um, you know, the alpha and beta region, uh, beta rhythms, other cases, they're much, much longer. Um, so, I, 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 but there is difficulty in getting to the resolution of the finest processes. And what they're actually doing, and and whether their um, those signals are jumping from astrocyte through the syncytium or propagating in other in other reasons. I guess you know, like in any interesting for, you know forefront area, there's so many more questions and answers. And yeah, but as a technology inventor, my main question is, what's wrong with the old technology? So it sounds like you're saying the spatial resolution is too poor. Is that an accurate summary of your statement? Well, yeah, and getting you know, getting the in vivo localized spatial resolution to 
answer questions of whether, you know, the, you know, activations in this process are driving plasticity changes in other neurons within the domain of the astrocyte or, um, you know, so both the fine spatial and temporal resolutions really, you know, pushing the limits to, you know, what we can capture. So the next step then is really to define the problem in terms of numbers. What is the number that describes the resolution you need in space? And what is the number that describes the resolution you need in time? Once you have a number, then we can build a tool, right? Mm -hmm. But I really need to know the number and that's the problem. And then once we know what the number is, that's the problem, we can devise a solution. But when it comes to things like resolution and time or space, the number is the, is the goal, right? Well, so if you're in um, submicrometer and millisecond regions. So a confocal microscope should have a lateral resolution of 300 nanometers. And mm -hmm. if you do line scanning, it should be able to go at 1,000 a thousand per second, right? So I guess the question is, what's wrong with the existing technology? I really want to understand what's wrong with the existing technology before I can mm -hmm. propose a solution to it. And I think confocal doesn't quite get to the finest processes of the astrocyte, but at least that's what sticks out in my mind. So, um, so we great to collect. Sorry, mm -hmm. go ahead. Oh, so I think we're down to the hundreds of nanometers then. Um, yeah, well, so go ahead. Well, go ahead. Sorry, you're first. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Well, I just think uh, then the right thing to do would be to collect some data with the flawed technology and evaluate why it's wrong, right? That's what I was referring to at the beginning of this little conversation where I call constructive failure. You have to fail to understand what the problem is, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think I understand what the problem is quite yet. Was it confocal down to 400 nanometers? You said 300 nanometers. Uh, well, the textbook would tell you the confocal lateral resolution is 300 nanometers, but but then the question is, what's what's wrong when you actually use it? I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So I have a question from the audience. Um, if that's okay, like that was in the chat and asked me in the back channel. Um, so um, the biggest question is: Do you think after genetics win uh, will be awarded the Nobel Prize? Uh, and um, do you think, yeah, do you think that this will happen? I, I'm, I would answer yes, but please go ahead. Ed. Um, I don't know. I mean, it has won several awards already. Um, a few of us received the Gardner Award, for example. Some others received the Lasker Award. Um, there have been, been some awards awarded for it. So who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It has won a lot of awards and it, it has brought us so many insights that we could have never done without it. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, it's it's very likely. And, um, you know, you develop um, so many um, really amazing, interesting tools um, also for mac mapping the architecture in the brain i think that's also really interesting do you think because you you mentioned in the beginning you come probably not anymore i don't know do you think you still have a different bias perspective than people that are you know doing the neuroscience part or or do you feel pretty much you were 
the same bias as we are. <laughs> what do you mean by bias? Well, not by you said in the beginning that was maybe helpful that you came from a different field and then joined the neuroscience field basically to develop these tools and I think you can also say you had a different perspective in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Do you have now still, do you think you still have a different perspective from people that came from biology and neuroscience or did you kind of merge? <laughs> well, you tell me, I mean, uh, my vision is we understand the brain uh, to the point where we can simulate thoughts and feelings on a computer. And that's because we can simulate the molecules throughout cells, all of them, and the cells throughout the brain, all of them. So that's my vision. And uh, I like to do that for some small brains like worms and fish. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we'd love to collaborate with more people on that. Um, and we're trying to build a network. But um, but yeah, I, I really just, I, I think of the brain as a as a system that runs on chemistry according to physical rules that uh, influence computation. So that's how I think about it. Whether other people think that way or not, I couldn't tell you. And so do you think we will know enough to simulate it? And will we know enough? I don't know. What, when do you think we will know enough to, let's say, to simulate a person's brain? It's probably something you got asked and it's probably impossible to answer, but it's still an interesting question. So thank you. Well, this is what I like to call real science, right? It's not like a cookbook where you follow a recipe and at noontime you're guaranteed lunch, right? This is real science where, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next. So I can't answer your question. Yeah, that is a real scientific answer. Um, I agree. We cannot um, possibly know that. But so in very simple organisms you you mentioned the worms you know we know all the neurons and uh we know a lot of molecules involved and so on um do you think that's enough um for us like could we could we have a model a full model of a worm by now uh to have like a full simulation um, run uh, based on, on, because that's probably the worm is probably the one we, mo we know most about. I don't think anybody's mapped the molecules, connections, and activity of a single worm, right? Um, I think that's what we need. Suppose I record the activity of my brain and we get the connections of a second person's brain. And we have the molecules of a third person's brain. I don't think we could add them up, right? Any more than taking the keyboard from a PC and the screen of an iPhone and the computer of, a, of an Android phone and, and mashing it all together would result in a functioning device. So what we want to do is to look at the activity and the wiring and the molecules all of the very same brain. And I think that's required. Um, and I don't think that's been done before. Yeah. Um... So, so do you think we really need to know every single molecule to know how thoughts work and, you know, how, how behavior works in general? Because, you know, when you, it's very different when you talk with people from different fields. Mostly if I talk with people that come from AI fields, um, they would say, 
like a lot of them would say probably no you don't need all this information you probably just need the surface of the information and then you you have enough to simulate something so do you have a view on that or is that also you know not something you would like to you know elaborate about well, if somebody can solve the brain with existing knowledge, please do it. And then I can retire and go lie on the beach. That'd be great. Um, but until that happens, I'm going to keep getting down to the ground truth, the fundamental building blocks of life. Yeah, I agree on that. <laughs> I just wanted to. But absolutely, if somebody can solve the brain and we can understand thoughts and feelings, I will I will gladly retire. If we fully understand the human mind, then, then we're done. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But, it's... but I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally. So I will continue to work. <laughs> yes, and 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 what? Um, I think that question was asked before. What you're working on right now? What what? What is happening in your lab right now in your world? Well, I think we summarized it earlier. You know, we like to see all the activity in a brain, map the molecules and connections of that very same brain and integrate that all into a model of what decisions, emotions, and so forth are. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Do you think, um, or could you maybe see that they are not just different types of neurons, but within the neurons uh, that we will come up with a better classification of synapses? Do you, do you think that's um, something we will have to do better? I guess my question would be, why do we need to classify the synapses? You know, would it be enough just to describe what they do? Or I don't know. I don't feel the need to classify. I would rather just understand the mechanism of how they work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I can see that. Uh, you know, right now we do like mushroom um, types. Like we, I don't know if you work with synapse people, the sometimes time. they do. <laughs> Right, they, they give the classifications, but I'm not sure how, I agree, I'm not sure how useful they are, but um, yeah, we, we kind of attempt that, but um, Well, they're what yeah. I call human-defined words, right? You know, we code names, like even the word neuroscience implies that we study neurons, but what about glial cells, right? I mean, there are all sorts of other cells, so I'm always very skeptical of human-defined words, and um, and so uh, what I really uh, want to do is what I said earlier, to understand the brain as a computer science system that runs on chemicals according to the laws of physics. And that's really how I want to think about things. Yeah, do you think the neuromorphic uh, field is really uh, exciting and interesting in that way? Um, I don't know much about it. No, I don't know much about it. Uh, it could be amazing, but I just don't know much about it. Yeah, it's kind of um, to you, basically attempt to do what you're saying um, to make like artificial synapses, um, some use real um, chemical gradients and so on, and um, or just simulating them uh, in a way. It's 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 a really interesting new field, but I think again the the better communication between what actually data is out there from neuroscientists and then uh, communicating them well with um with in engineers that are working on that is is really very helpful so 
I'm so impressed that you did that and and you do that. You keep doing that so well. So, so what's um, how do you do that in everyday life to um, keep this communication up very well? And could you give advice um, for you know for the field to be more multidisciplinary? Should people stay broader, like? kind of you did in your education to be able to switch fields? Should people do that more? Like, what would your advice be uh, for maybe developing better AI and, and, and models? Well, I don't know much about developing better AI, so I can't help you on that question. Regarding fields, I try not to think about fields very much, because again, those are human-defined words, right? Why should we stop learning just because now we've gone from physics into chemistry or chemistry into physics? I just don't see the boundaries between them very well. Oh, I love that answer because um, that's why we did the science society and bring people from very different fields together. We kind of see it uh, very similarly. Um, so that's that's uh, really amazing. So, um, so. I think should schools change their 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 program? Like, should there be a general science degree and not, you know, bachelors of different types of science fields? I'm not sure. I mean, I was an undergraduate for six years, right? I think the world's gotten much more fast-paced since then. You know, I did college before there were there was a department of biological engineering at MIT or bioengineering at Stanford. That's all pretty new. So I spent two years learning chemistry and then four years learning electrical engineering, computer science and physics. I don't know anybody else who spent six years as an undergrad since then. So um, yeah, the world's gotten so fast paced. I don't know if the world has patience for such things. Yeah, that's, that's true. But in general, like, don't you think in developed countries, youth like the time we have to be spent in youth keeps increasing. Um, you know, like, for example, you are able to um, be on your parents' health insurance until 25. Back in the days, maybe it wasn't until 18. Like, for example, I grew up in Germany. I'm from Portugal, but I grew up in Germany. So there you could drop off school with 16 and now you have to stay in school until you're 18. I feel like we have that sense, but in reality, government and legislations and all of these give us actually more time to spend in this youth state. So maybe maybe it's a money thing in the US that it's also very expensive to stay longer. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think there's like a cultural difference in that? There are a lot of differences. I mean, I think there is also the question of privilege. You know, if somebody does have wealthy parents who can put their kids on their health insurance or whatnot, maybe they can uh, go to school longer. But I know a lot of people who had to go work because they started having children or they needed to, to you know, have a job to make money. Um, and so there's, a, I think, a lot of questions about equity in educational systems as well. Yeah, this is a, a complex societal topic that touches upon every aspect of society, I'm afraid. Yeah, I I agree on that. Um, and yeah, I was a very young mother with 18, but gladly I grew up in Germany, so 
could go to college for free. I even got money every month if I had good wow. grades. So, yeah, it's very different. Yeah. But if I wouldn't have been there, I wouldn't be here now talking oh. with you. So, thank you. And uh, Victoria. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to just jump in. I was What you asked, Katarina, was similar on my mind. I, I was curious. So, I work in arts education, um, but um, integrating arts into science. And so when I'm hearing you talk about, um, you know, that this word, this is, a, you know, human derived from our language and it shouldn't dictate our science. And also um, understanding that things are, that life is all interrelated so that it's, it's very artificial to regiment um, subjects even. But I recognize that we do that for, um, you know, convenience sake even. But my question is, if you, if you could change something or, or if there was a certain path of education that you think, you know, maybe a philosophy that, that you would follow, Mm-hmm. What would that be? Just for example, I feel like kids, it would be great to expose kids to something like calculus way before arithmetic, just because it's conceptual and kids love concepts. They don't need to be able to do things necessarily correctly, you know, but, but kids are so concept driven. So, yeah, so that's my question. I think individuals are so different from each other. I mean, I have two children now and they're, they're quite different. And then I, I feel like my mind is actually quite different from how a lot of people deal with science. I mean, I think my, my mind is very language oriented and I think of scientific concepts almost like stories. Um, so I'm not sure there's a one size fits all in terms of even how to teach mathematics. Um, my, my two children learn math in, I think, very different ways. Um, yeah, I don't know much about education, I, I think. Uh, I've, I've, I've taught college students and and graduate students at a certain point where they're really quite quite advanced, but but I think early in life people learn so differently. When I started learning biology, having trained in physics, I was overwhelmed by all the acronyms and alphabet soup. You know, there are thirty thousand genes in the genome. Do we have to learn all thirty thousand and all the millions of variants? And so I started treating biology like a language, and I almost feel like I trained my brain a little bit like like an AI. You know. Where, here are all these different relationships between concepts, and then I would extract patterns from them. Um, so I think I think of biology quite differently than somebody who kind of grew up, you know, learning biology. But when I started graduate school in neuroscience, I hadn't taken a biology class since high school, so I, I knew so little about it. Um, so yeah, I think it really depends on how individual minds work. I mean, I yeah, think well, we know so little about sorry. that. Go ahead. No, that's why I asked you because really it isn't the in well in in my thinking it's not the science of education that that would be the best at directing education because everyone is different but it's really people who remember how they actually learned not how they were able to prepare for a test but how how learning happened and how engaging in with a topic happened so you're describing um you know creating or noticing recognizing patterns of concepts and and how you worked so that's what I think is really exciting when people, you know, maybe you can apply that kind of um, compassion to your students when you're sharing information with them, that they might be learning it so many different ways and, and allowing for that. That's a great mistake, I think, that we make is not recognizing what you said. <coughs> Everyone's an individual. Yeah, I mentored 250 people in my group and who knows how many hundreds more in my classes. Every person is different. And I think partly why I, I customize mentorship to each person, you know, some people might need to collaborate more. 
Some people should collaborate less and read more. Some people might read too much and should get out and play around. Some people are too playful and should be more disciplined. You know, everybody needs different mentorship. And I think that's one reason why our alumni have been so successful and gone on to start climate change companies and 3D printing companies and going after it, revolutionizing education and trying to, you know, start institutes right out of graduate school and so forth. It's because they have all learned in their own way. It's so key. People always ask me, what's your mentorship style? And I'm like, I don't know how to answer that question. It, you know, you, if you ask five people in my group what my mentor style is, you might get five opposite answers. You remind me of, there's an educator, Paulo Freire, and Caterina, I think he was Portuguese, forgive me if I mispronounce his name, but exactly what you're describing is that he said he fought back against, well, he wrote his major work was Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he, and he fought back against what he called the banking system of education, where teachers would con, um, consider that students were vessels to be filled with information. Instead, he's, he asked that we recognize that everybody comes with their own experience and bank of, of information, and that that's what we need, to, we need to see so that we can help everybody you know, just, um, I'll, I'll not allow, but just get out of people's way and facilitate whatever the heck they need because we all come with, we all come with different treasure to the classroom. Yeah. The one thing I would push back a little bit is what people need might not be what they want always. And I, I, I sometimes feel like I have to be the opposite of the student, right? If somebody is way too collaborative, I might need to get them to focus. But if somebody's way too focused, I might need to get them to collaborate a bit. And, and sometimes I feel like my job is to, is to sort of, you know, be the, uh, the dialectical fusion. And uh, yeah, I, I haven't read this book, so maybe I'm being redundant with it. But, um, not at but, all. Uh, but I do think that um, just giving people what they think they want might not be what they actually yeah. want when it comes to education. Anyway. Right. Yes, of course, it's, it is. There's, there's a lot. But that's, that's definitely worth mentioning. So I see um, Dr. Haida is, is here and you've, um, would you like to? Uh, thank you, Victoria. Yes, yeah, it's a beautiful discussion. I'm a big fan, actually, of neurobiology, and I use it in my teaching in tertiary education and secondary education. So uh, to give a context, I'm actually based in Australia, in Melbourne, and uh, working with a few universities, Melbourne Uni, Flinders Uni, and South Australia University uh, for STEAM education. So um, big fan of utilizing the left and right brain. So thank you, uh, Dr. Biden, <laughs> and thank you, Victoria. This is ID, and I'm complete. Thank you. Wonderful meeting you. Likewise, same here. Uh, thank you for joining our stage. Go ahead, Katarina. Yeah, I wanted to check in with Ed. Uh, I've not been going for an hour, more or less, so wanted to check in, you know, give you an opportunity to get rid of us. <laughs> Or if you have a few more minutes, uh, please let us know. Yeah, probably a few more minutes. My kids are home now, and they probably want to have dinner at some point. Uh, but uh, but if there are other questions, I'm uh, happy to answer them. Uh, yeah, Serena, go ahead. So I was really um, curious about a follow-up on um, some of the ideas you expressed in terms of how, how far we can go in simulating um, the detail of life. Um, Spent a couple decades on the large-scale simulation, um, both following, you know, the advances in resources and how 
much further we can reach as well as um, you know being perilously under-resourced in terms of the you know full picture of what nature serves up um, recently though I got involved in just a separate side project um, looking at you know how we might take it a, a little step further in terms of um, subcellular <laughs> simulation and phenomena and I'm wondering in terms of your thinking and uh, about approaches to the level of fidelity and the detail of what you would want in a simulation for um, in, in part of part of the motivation behind the question is um, in in I did want the you know aspects of chemical diffusion uh, present but not in atomistic um, you know full detail of empirical force fields all atom force fields and so forth um, it, what it led me down to is well what we really need in within the simulation is some type of developmental protocol to get us to you know em, embracing extremely complex simulations it's very difficult to set them up but if we can draw on principles of multicellular uh, systems and how they develop, uh, perhaps we could grow more complex arrangements. Um, but it's always tricky where you cut the abstractions. Uh, just wondering on your thoughts on the um, you know, next stages in that type of detailed simulation that, you're, that you expressed interest in. Well, whether you're still in development or the mature state, you still have to simulate according to some rules, right? I think that what we want to do is to map out what's actually there and see what the interactions look like and from that derive the rules. I'm very empirical. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would apply to whether you want to simulate development or the mature state. Well, even in terms of mapping out what's there and what you begin to simulate, um, I'm assuming you're not going down to atomistic detail or are you? Well, I don't know. We, this is what I like to call real science. We don't know when to stop, right? <laughs> I'm not going to give everybody, anybody a cheap approximation here. I'm going to tell it like it is. And anybody who tells you they know when to stop and they can guarantee a simulation life is, is probably wrong or, or lying or both. So in terms of the next stages, though, we're certainly not ready for, you know, a fully quantum mechanical treatment of, uh, you know, an entire brain. For example, Do we need quantum mechanics, though, when we're at room temperature I, or body temperature? I personally don't think so. It's an interesting discussion, and um, I, I, you know, I don't think we're we're done with Maxwell's or or, or anything. Um, but it's it, it's an interesting discussion whether there are any quantum mechanical effects that are relevant to thought and behavior. Um, well, extraordinary claims do need extraordinary evidence. There have been several analyses of how long you can keep coherent states in a messy body temperature environment like the brain, and uh, you know it, it seems unlikely. But if, if somebody can prove it, you know, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I'm driven by the data. What matters is the data in the end. Mm -hmm. Are you? I guess I, I should ask: Are you actively pursuing uh, more detailed simulations? Right now we're focused on the mapping. We want to know what's there mm -hmm. and how it interacts. Without the data, I don't think we're ready to simulate. Um, I think, oh, thank you. Uh, I think we skipped Ilya and I wanted to acknowledge Ilya that he's here. And um, I'm sorry, do you, did you have a question? 
Yes, I do. I don't know. If, can you hear me? I'm on Bluetooth. Perfect. Okay, awesome. Hey, uh, so I apologize. I joined a little bit late, so well, quite late, uh, and I missed some parts, but I heard some other parts, and I'm curious. Uh, so tell me if it's feasible or not, or if I'm thinking it correctly. When it comes to gene therapies, uh, is you know whatever tools you've designed, is that something that could be used? Uh, yeah, yeah. So optogenetics is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, being used in Europe uh, in clinical trials for blindness, and that's a gene therapy um, using standard gene therapy vectors. That's not my area of expertise, but um, there are many people in Europe who are using doing that kind of work. Yeah, I, I think it's really impressive that they started this because people tended to say, oh, this will still take a long time, but uh, it's really, they have really impressive results. So it's very promising. Yeah, please, Ilya, I just temporarily muted because it sounded like there was um, some sound coming from your mic that and we couldn't hear Ed's answer, but I didn't um, want to imply that we were stopping you in your path to questioning. Yeah, I realized that I, I'm sorry. Uh, and so yeah, the other, I guess the second part of the same question. Uh, so that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's optogenetics, right? So that that's, uh, I'm guessing it's a, it's a visual thing that requires some inputs for that to work. When it comes to uh, like more neuronal diseases, right? Uh, this is what I'm after truly. Uh, does the same concept apply? Does what concept apply? I didn't quite follow. So, like, like you said, uh, they're okay. doing uh, they're doing trials for uh, vision related diseases. Uh, what if it's not vision related disease? Uh, nobody's pursuing that yet. I see. So I don't have All an right. answer to that question. Thank you. And LT, hi. I think one of the last questions will be yours. Please go ahead. Thank you, Katerina, and thank you, Ed. And my question is related to the, because the other disease you mentioned is Alzheimer's disease, right? Is it carried right. on in US or is it in Europe? That's in the United States, yeah. So Li Wei Sai is an MIT professor. She used optogenetics to discover a brain wave that in mice could clean up Alzheimer's. Uh, the teams then went on under Li Wei's leadership to develop movies, flickering lights and clicking sounds that can also clean up Alzheimer's in mice. And now, um, both in a company that we co-founded uh, to do scalable clinical trials, as well as in multiple university trials, there are uh, several teams now that are trying to, to see if movies can indeed help clean up Alzheimer's disease. So clean up a plaque, in that case, is the mask for the, in, in the mice? Not just plaques, but uh, hyperphosphorated tau, microglial oh, okay. inflammation, okay improving blood flow, and, and the list goes on and on. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. I have to look up because I'm really interested. Thank you. It's a wonderful discussion. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, everyone. If I, yeah. if I could follow up on this. So, yeah, this is what I was curious about. Uh, is it just limited to Alzheimer's, or is that the model you, you chose for your proof of concept? Well, Li Wei Sai is an expert in Alzheimer's disease. Um, so uh, her group led the project. Our group is uh, helping from the technology side. Um, but now that the, the papers have been published, people have grown interested in applying this way of thinking to many different conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if I may, um, 
Ilya um, asked a question, and I think related to that, Ilya, you can find on the website we shared the maybe um checking out also the optogenetics hardware at your um you developed which is also really impressive for in vivo manipulation that is very precise in a 3d space um combining it with the holographic photo activation uh, just click on optogenetics hardware enabling neural control by light um, it's it's really impressive, and I think it will. But Ed, maybe you want to add something to that. Um, well, first of all, it's really important to point out who led the work. So Valentina Emiliani, um, at the Institut de la Vision in Paris, led the work to build the holographic projectors. Uh, that's not our work, um, but it's work led by her. Um, but yeah, we did collaborate with her to build um, um, holographic strategies for controlling single neurons in the brain in three D. Where would I see this? I'm looking for it right now. Is that uh, syntheticneurobiology.org? Yeah. So if you click on the link that's post, yeah, on top, and then you go to a project, I believe. Um, and then there are the different projects that um, the group is currently working on. And one is the hardware enabling neural control by light. So it says that I can just read that. Um, the Ed and his colleagues have developed a set of optogenetic reagents that um, fully encoded reagents that when targeted specific cells, you know, that's kind of optogenetics, you can control them via light and then you have these different <clears throat> um, light um, transmitting um, electrodes or cables, wires and um, you can then precisely in a 3D space control in a living animal, which is really important um, because it's really interesting to see what different cells in the 3D space do in a behaving animal. Um, I don't know if you want to add something to that, Ed. Um, yeah, happy to answer any questions. Uh, so other than not having to have a two photon microscope set up, is there any, um, you know, spatial temporal advantages to, to this device over doing, say, you know, holographic stimulation with an SLM or something like that? That's what it is, yeah. So Valentina pioneered that. She pioneered two photon SLM holography for neural control. That's her invention. I see. I thought we were talking about an implantable uh, device or something. I, I'll look at the link. Oh, no, this is not implantable yet. No. Gotcha. I'm with you. Well, on the website, you have one implantable device like the, that has, you know, different cable like um, optic um, cables in there. And then I believe you can stimulate them. Is it a string? of LEDs and that permits you to enable blue light and red light and different um, uh, heights basically of, um, of that string or? So let me propose a way of thinking about this because otherwise we're going to get bogged down in details. Light sources are a dime a dozen in your computer, in your phone, 
on your ceiling. There are LEDs, lasers, light sources are dirt cheap and ubiquitous. So you can pay, take those light sources and arrange them in any 3D pattern you want, right? That's what the consumer electronics industry has done for you. So, um, so I wouldn't focus on any one light source or device. Instead, I would just say, look at your cell phone, look at your automobile, look at the light bulbs on your ceiling, look at, you know, you can make light sources in any 3D geometry you want nowadays. So if you want to make it in some 3D shape, you can do whatever you want. That's how I think about it. So all these examples we're talking about, we're kind of getting bogged down in details, but they're, the, the, the way to think about it is just to think that light sources are everywhere, right? And you can make light sources any way you want. That's how I think about it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a really great way of uh, explaining that. And um, um, did anyone have any last questions or comments? Yes, uh, Katarina. Thank you. Oh, okay. Yes, <laughs> and excuse the noise behind me because I'm in holidays. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, um, just a quick question about epigenetics. It may be related to Elia's uh, question, the epigenetics and the biomimicry. The advances in using both of those uh, sciences in neurobiology, are we getting there or not yet? Thank you. So I'm afraid I don't know much about those topics. I'm more of an inventor who makes technologies to see and control things. But I mean, certainly you can apply our tools to, to anything and everything. So yeah, if, if you're interested in those topics and want our help with our technologies, happy to help. But uh, epigenetics, I mean, people are definitely applying our tools to that. Biomimicry, you could study all sorts of biology, but I definitely am not an expert on those topics. We start an early research in Melbourne Uni uh, using the beetles and the camouflage and the photonics as well. So uh, we may discuss it further on uh, uh, another arena or academia because I really admire what Katrina trying to do here, uplifting uh, the level of Clubhouse to be a very sciencey, academically placed. So thanks to Katrina and thanks to you. To, to be here with us today and have this deep discussion in science. Thank you so much. Always happy to help. Yeah, thank you, Heidi, for saying that. And um, yeah, I, I couldn't um, agree more. It's um, so, so such an honor that you came and took the time to answer our questions and also have this broader discussions with us. Um, it was such an interesting discussion and I hope you enjoyed it and um, yeah you're always invited back of course I know you're very very busy but um, maybe next year one day we can we can have you back and um, enjoy dinner <laughs> with your children I know children that are hungry are not easy to control so oh, <laughs> we don't know I'm amazed I'm still alive <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you so much again. And, um, yeah, uh, we are really all happy that you spent some time with us here today. And, uh, yeah, we are looking forward to follow your work. So, thank you. Stay in touch and have a great night. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, for coming, asking questions, being involved. Uh, we always appreciate that. Um, Follow the club if you like discussions like this. And um, then you can see the calendar. And um, yeah, enjoy your day, night, wherever you are. And uh, thank you again, everyone. And of course, special thanks to you.
Uh, Wonderful okay. talking to you. Yeah, thank you, uh, you know, Dr. Pavin, to share uh, your precious thoughts with us. And thanks, Katarina. Uh, as always, this is always, you know, uh, very, very, you know, exciting uh, uh, times to spend with uh, all, all the best friends of society here. Uh, thank you to all. Thank you, uh, everyone, for, for those who run the room. Thank you, uh, Dr. Boyden, for joining us. Uh, I'll be... Uh, firing you uh, an email about dendrites uh, in the future. So thanks for joining. Have a great day. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. See you later. Thanks, everyone.